Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over there and start using it now. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. All right, guys. Welcome back. EYL Houston edition. Oh, man. If you notice, the, the, the backdrop is different. That's because we're on the road right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we took the show on the road for this one. For sure, sure. <laughs> so we in the we in the great state of Texas, the beautiful city of Houston. So first and foremost... Shout out to everybody in H-Town. We've only been here for like less than 24 hours, and you guys shown so much love so yeah. far. I mean, as soon as we got on the plane, right? They, they gave up their seats. Shout out to Crystal for giving up her seats so we could have some ladies. <laughs> shout out to her. Yeah, yeah, shout <laughs> out to her. Shout out to the radio station today. Yeah, 97.9. Um, our guy, Matt, Matt Hatter. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great. So we're enjoying ourselves, and um, we're going to come back out here. We're going to spend some more time in Houston. Yeah, for sure. love out here is real. Yeah, so we got a special, very special episode today um we have a special guest chris senegal thank you for joining us appreciate it man welcome to houston senegal like the country just like the country (laughs) (laughs) shout out to africa um so yeah we're going to talk about a lot of different things this episode um we're going to talk about everything from gentrification real estate investing um day trading a lot of different stuff chris is a very interesting guy he's He's a renaissance man. He does a lot of different things. He got things. a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> he got a lot going on. And this is one of the things that we try to do when we travel. We try to tap in with the movers and shakers and, and business people that are making waves and, and making a name for themselves in the city. So we had to tap in with the good brother. So I want to get right into it. You're, you're an interesting guy. You, you told me that um, you went to school for 
to be an engineer. You're, you're, right. You're a trained engineer. Originally. Yeah, civil right? engineer. Huh? Okay. My degrees. Yeah. All right. And then, but you was um actually day trading for mm-hmm. a little bit, right? We haven't really covered day trading too yeah. much. We had an mm-hmm. episode on stocks and we talked a little bit about um Wall Street, but we didn't really go into day trading. We, what, what made you go into day trading? Man, so eventually that, that essentially that was my escape to try to get out of corporate America, you know, because I was like. I was like the good kid, you know what I mean? Straight A's in school, full scholarship to college, engineering job. Got out there, I did it for like the first six months. I was like, man, I've been sold a dream. I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I felt. And so first thing that, that came across my desk was uh, stocks and trading. And I, I, I ran into a guy one day uh, when I was at a conference for work, as a matter of fact, and he was by the pool all day, every day with his laptop. And I was like, what is this dude doing? And so he was a brother and he was sitting out there and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm trading. You know, so he was watching the market, what they call scalping. So basically watching for a stock to go up, knowing that it's 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 probably going to come back down really quickly. So he'll buy and make that little margin in the middle. And so basically I kind of talked him into becoming my mentor. And so for like a full year, I was like fully invested in learning how to trade outside of my work. So prior to that moment, did you have any familiarity with, with stocks? And all that? I had no familiarity with anything but going to school and getting a job. Ooh. You know what I mean? So I, I had no exposure to business, entrepreneurship, investing, nothing. That w- this was my, my aha moment, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, that's how I got started. So what did he teach you about um, day trading? Like, what does, like, day trading 101 look like? For anybody that's not familiar, day trading is when you can really day trade anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when, so most of the time when you invest in something, you invest in whole, mm-hmm. right? Day trading is when you're, you're, dating, you're trading in the day. Mm-hmm. So you might buy a stock. At 11 o'clock in the morning, and then you, you sell it at 11:30. Mm-hmm. You sell it at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. You're trying to like just make quick, short-term profits, mm-hmm. and you do that pretty much every day. And it's like a a job where you're just like watching the computer, watching yeah. like different, um, you know, swings in the market, mm-hmm. and then you you buy and then you sell, right? So, yeah. what's the 101 that he taught you and you kind of learned as far as day trading? Uh, mainly just the cycles of the day. You know, I think a lot of people that understand day trading they're trained to look at the signals so there's a lot of different technical indicators that people use um and there's certain like certain dips that you'll watch for there's a certain spike in a a stock or a certain cycle where it goes up and down up and down a couple times and then when it breaks what they call like a resistance barrier where it goes up higher than something um then it's time for you to get in because it's probably about to make a run and go up and so like you said you know day trading is basically just guessing what's about to happen based off of previous behavior of uh, of generally stocks in general. What's the stress level of somebody that's going to do day trading, man? I could imagine, right? Like it, I remember we were talking about uh, cryptocurrency and we weren't sleeping, so mm-hmm. I mean, we were doing that with money that we knew we could lose. Mm-hmm. But somebody who's doing that as a career, what, what's the stress level? Pretty high, man. A lot of people don't survive. Mm. Um, I got out of it after a year, honestly. Okay. I mean, you c- it 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 is. I would say it's about thirty percent better than gambling, sports betting. Yeah. You know <laughs> what I mean? Because at the end of the day, it's still a person on the other end of whatever you're watching that's making decisions. And it's big institutions that are buying stocks. It's, it, it could be individuals. But um, if they own enough uh, shares of that particular stock that you're watching, they make a decision. That's what makes it spike or go down. And so you're guessing and you're, you're, you're assuming that because people told you when you see this pattern in this stock that th- this is going to be the result. You're assuming that that's what's going to happen this time again. A lot of times, that's not the case. Yeah, because there's a thing called technical analysis. So right. when, you, when you're looking at stocks, there's fundamental analysis and then mm-hmm. the technical analysis, mm-hmm. right? So fundamental analysis is when you're looking at fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, when people actually look at, like, earnings ratio and 
how the company is doing, stuff like that. But mm -hmm. then the technical analysis is when you're just looking at all technical stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So these are things that really has nothing to do with the how the company is doing. Mm -hmm. And there's like different indicators and charts, like the candlestick um, right, yeah. chart. And so mm -hmm. like you said, and then there's like um, barriers and it's like, okay, if it, if it breaks out over this, then mm -hmm. that means it's going to go up. If it, if it goes down under that, then mm -hmm. it's going to... It's, it's, I tell people all the time, it's not something that you can just jump into no it's very complicated <laughs> it is and you can get lucky like all things in life you can actually get lucky yeah. and, and make some money mm -hmm. but in the long haul you can lose a lot of money because it moves very quickly mm -hmm. and um like you said a lot of things are just out of your control right and even with the good technical analysis you can still not really because it's still kind of guessing in a sense mm -hmm. you're kind of just making a prediction right based off of educated knowledge right. of what you are seeing mm -hmm. but even what you're seeing can be manipulated mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so you said after you only did it for a year. I did it for a year. After yeah. a year, what happened next? Man, um, I, I I fell back for a minute. I started reading more and trying to figure out you know what other industry uh, I could get into um, just to get out of that job. And so I started reading books, and real estate kept coming up. Mm. You know, um, at the same point in time, I actually decided I was going to leave that job I had, and I moved back to Houston. I was in Memphis at that point in time. Moved back to Houston, but it was during the recession, 2008. So I couldn't sell my house. Mm -hmm. So uh, after like a year of paying the mortgage payment, I just decided to get a property manager up in Memphis to rent it out for me. They rented it out. They rented it up for like $400 more than what the mortgage payment was. So then that's when that light bulb kind of went off for me. It was like, wait a minute. So I'm out here trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And meanwhile, I got this property that's out of state. I got somebody else working, managing it for me every month. And I'm making $400 a month doing nothing. Blessing in disguise. Blessing in disguise. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that opens up the passive income. So that's when everything shifted to real estate. Dope, dope. Can we talk about the um the franchise business that you had a little bit? Uh, because you had, it's called Superweave Express? Yeah, Superweave. So what was, what, what was the, so, all right, Superweave Express, I'm assuming it's, it was weave. Hair right? extensions, hair extensions, the full service. Big alone. business, man. Uh, yeah. So that's a billion dollar business, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We talked about the hair business, but not really in depth, but mm -hmm. what made you want to go into, as a man, what made you want to go into the, a woman's industry? Man, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's a supply and demand thing, right? So as an entrepreneur, you know, you got to supply a product. Um, and if there's a demand for it and there's a spread, then you can make a profit. And that's the only reason why I looked at it. Um, the actually, the founders of that company um, are actually from my hometown, Port Arthur, Texas. Okay. And they had several locations. And I sat down with them, and they showed me the revenue numbers. And the, their store was doing like half a million dollars a year. And I was like, man, I had no idea. I the Weaves store? Yeah, yeah. It was a physical brick-and-mortar store? Brick-and-mortar store. They, they had, they had uh, stylists there. Um, and they, it was a commission-based salon, so they got a percentage of the commission, but they did all the marketing, they did all the advertising, and then they assigned clients to the customers as they came in, and they also supplied the hair. So they bought it at the wholesale price, sold it at retail. So mm -hmm. you bought a franchise, correct? Yeah, I bought a franchise. So what's that process like? Because I, I think we spoke about that in our, one of our early episodes about mm -hmm. being a franchisee. What is that process like, and, and how did you get involved? Mm -hmm. So the whole franchise model is basically, instead of you starting a business from scratch, you are identifying somebody that already has a business that appears to be successful, and you're paying them to use their branding, to use their their business model, you know, th their, their business plan, and in exchange, you're you're gonna pay them up front, you know, as 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 as, as, as a fee to get in, and then monthly they're gonna take a percentage of your revenue, mm. you know what I mean? and so that's that's what your franchise fee is. And the, the the thing that most people don't realize is that the average business is only profitable within the 15 to 20% margin range, right? So then when you're a franchisee, 
if that franchise says their their royalty is what it's called, if it's four to eight percent, that's four to eight percent of your gross. Mm. So they are a top line expense. They're not they not they don't wait to see if you're profitable or not on the back end. So franchises they can be good because it takes a lot of the risk out of what you're doing, mm -hmm. but your profitability goes down. Yeah, you so said it's that it's a trade off. Can you can you explain that when you said um, the average business is profitable fifteen to twenty percent in the profit uh, margin? Mm -hmm. Can you explain that like what that means to the average person? I mean, I understand that. So the the, the biggest issue that I see with a lot of us, a lot the, the biggest thing that we have a lack of exposure to is when we start businesses, we listen to what somebody quotes as their revenue, mm. right? And that's the growth. So that's every dollar you've taken in, but that doesn't include what it, what your what your rent cost is, what what, what your labor cost is, which, yeah, what your what your what your product cost is. You mm -hmm. know, even when you bring in money, if you're in a business that that has a lot of merchandise and products, even if you have profit, usually if your business is growing, you got to take all of that revenue and put it right back in the business to re up on your inventory and probably buy more inventory to keep up with your demand. So there's a lot of money you can't really pull out that pot. Mm. Um, then you t then you got like utilities, you got taxes. You got all these expenses that come along with running a business, and then what's left is profit. So, and most of the time, that's fifteen to twenty percent, especially if you're brick and mortar. Mm. Yeah, you said that was one of your <coughs> biggest mistakes is getting mm. into a business um, based on their revenue and not their net profit. That's it. How that did that come about? How did you realize like this was a mistake that I made? Was well, it this, this this business specifically. Okay. So, so when we opened, um, we 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 hit uh, a home run. You know, the first year we did. 450,000 in revenue um, is like 60% from the retail side and 40% uh, from the services side, which is the hair salon. Mm -hmm. But the expenses were so high and we had to keep so much money tied up in it that at the end of the year, what was left on the table was about $60,000. Wow. And then I had a partner. So now you're splitting that two ways. So now we, 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 for all that work, you make $30,000 a year. Oh, that's crazy. Can you, can you just go into <laughs> that? You said that you, your your net was six hundred thousand. Uh, Four hundred fifty thousand. Four hundred fifty thousand. Four hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. And you you netted um sixty. Thirty. Yeah. Well, you had to split 60, the, Yeah. Oh right. Yeah, right. Right. Split, yeah. Thirty. How did that happen? Okay. So number one, we went. We we wanted to be in a prime area, so we went and got a a, a, a retail space in a shopping center. We was like between a Sally Beauty Supply and a Sam's, mm. and so that was like five grand a month right there, mm. off the top. Um, then since n neither he nor I were stylists, or we knew how to run a salon, we had to hire a manager, okay. and we had to have an assistant. Mm -hmm. So that's 70 grand right there. And then, you know, the, the revenue for the hair extensions, you know, only about 30, 35% of that is profit. So we spent 200,000 on that. So, you know, that, that revenue looks like it's really high, but when you look at all the expenses, it gets really, gets smaller. Then you got utilities, you got product you gotta keep in the salon for the stylists to be able to use. You got marketing and advertising. We were spending like five grand a month to stay on the radio to keep people walking through the door. Um, you got insurance. So it's, it's a lot of expense that's tied to that business. And this, this, is, what, this is 2017? This was 2014, 14. 2015. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because a lot of times people don't fully understand. This is a reason why most businesses fail, right? Mm -hmm. Financial issues. Mm -hmm. They don't fully understand what goes into making a business. So even mm -hmm. if you make almost, in your case, almost a half a million dollars a mm -hmm. year, you still might be broke. You end up making thirty thousand yeah. dollars. It's like yeah. you could have worked a part-time job. Really, and, and, and now the, the but that business is probably taking like 
10 hours a day for you to actually run maybe even more if exactly right and, and we were open seven days a week so there was no days off you know oh, wow yeah so e even though you have a manager and manager manager still looks to the owner to make final decisions on things so you're on call all the time you know i tell people a lot of times what you said is exactly right you may leave the comfort of a job to start a business not really realizing you're just creating another job for yourself mm -hmm. with less benefits with nothing to fall <laughs> back on <laughs> you know so it, it's got to be the right decision you got to really understand the business you're getting into no that's a fact so mm -hmm. what would you what would your suggestion be as far as for an entrepreneur or an inspiring entrepreneur um that is going out there would, would, would you say that you know looking at expenses is just in, as important as looking at what they could potentially make much more important much more important much more important yeah and you know and i highly advocate getting a mentor somebody that's doing it and um you know because there's hardly a business you're gonna find where somebody else isn't already running a business like it and I, I encourage people to try to find somebody in a different market that's doing the same thing so that they're more open and willing to talk to you about the ins and outs the, the nasty part that people don't talk about mm -hmm. you know what I mean because they won't feel like they're creating their competition but a lot of times a lot of them just want to vent and they want to talk about you know the real issues and they they, they don't want to confide in their friends and their, their immediate circle because everybody looks up at them, puts them on a pedestal for having this business. But so it's, it kind of gives you an opportunity to be a sounding board and really learn the business. Mm -hmm. you know? no, that's dope. And then also experience is always the best. Uh, Teacher as well. I mean, man. no matter how much, you're still gonna have to make mistakes and learn on your own. Yeah. But like you said, you kind of curve the learning curve a lot if right. you yeah. actually have a mentor yeah. or you're working under somebody for a time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's not about what you, what you make, it's about what you keep, man, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and, and your school kind of conditions us to try to learn how to get it right on our own first. Mm -hmm. you know, don't cheat, don't copy off of somebody. But when you get in the world of business, your best bet is to copy the right cat. Let's not try to read that's a that's a good yeah. you know that's yeah. a good point. That was, that yeah. was an excellent analogy. That's actually a yeah. really good point. Yeah. Never yeah. really thought about it like that. Well I mean and that's something I teach too like because I meet so many people in corporate America that are trying to get out. Um, and I just tell them number one, you gotta retrain the way you think about everything. Because mm -hmm. school not only school teach you not to cheat, school teaches you that if you're wrong more than 10% of the time, you are not the best. Mm. All A students gotta be right 90% of the time or more consistently right. to stay yeah. to stay up, up up on that pedestal. Whereas you got a lot of people that were C and D students um, failed, they comfortable failing 20, 30% of the time, all the time, and at the end, they got the same diploma you got. You know, mm -hmm. Jack, Jack Ma said something interesting. Um, for anybody that doesn't know who that is, that's the head of Alibaba. He's one of the richest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And he said he told he tells his son that um, you don't have to be an A student. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be a C student mm -hmm. because those are the only people that have enough time to be well-rounded mm -hmm. and to experience a lot of different things. Because if you, the theory is that a lot of times, it's like doctors, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times they don't know anything about a lot of stuff because they focus so much on medicine yeah. and passing all their tests, mm -hmm. they don't know how to write a check, right? Yeah. So what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense and it is an issue with the school system because even if you look at a sport like baseball, you bat 300, mm -hmm. you bat 400, you're you like one of the best yeah. ever. Like, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's like, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's less than 50%. Yeah. You expect somebody to do 80, 90%, yeah. it's not realistic right. in the real world. You make yeah. mistakes, right. yeah. especially if you're gonna be Broad range and have knowledge on a, a lot of different things. It's mm -hmm. hard to, to just truly master five different subjects. Yeah, right? I, that's one of those questions we used to ask ourselves, right? It was like, mm -hmm. should we know a lot about a few things mm -hmm. or know a little about a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? Because that makes you more well-rounded when you're versed in a lot of things, right? Like I don't have a background in business, but I'm mm -hmm. willing to learn in these areas, right? Yeah. I might not know medicine, but I'll research on mm -hmm. it. You know what I'm saying? So we got to keep ourselves well-rounded. That's why I always stress like education doesn't stop in school. Right. 
right? It goes beyond the four walls of the, or the building of school. It goes Definitely. in the living environment. It goes in the home. It mm-hmm. goes in the community. It, mm-hmm. It's all over. It right. surrounds us. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So that was, that was actually really good information as far as for, for anybody that's looking to get into business and business owner. But now we're going to go into some more stuff. We're going to go into real estate. We're also going to go into your career as an engineer. I think that mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. And something I think that we've really touched happened. on that. What, what we, have, we haven't really business. spoke about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, all right, so we're going to that in the next segment. All right, so now we want to talk about, all right, so you're, you're an engineer mm-hmm. by, um, by training, mm-hmm. and you, uh, you worked for the railroad company, right? Right. Can you explain that, like what you actually did? Because you did that for 12 years, right? Yeah. So I started while I was in college, like, like working for him part-time. Um, but what I did was, so design rail terminals, um, the, I mean, it, it's pretty. It was pretty simple, uh, as far as the engineering because you're not building buildings or anything, but it, it was just a lot of work that was needed to like when after a derailment, you know, realigning the track, and making sure that the trains can run because they run they run at a high velocity on these two little bitty rails, and you got hundreds of thousands of tons moving at 60, 70 miles an hour. So you had to make sure that everything was designed, the curvature was right, and all that kind of and, stuff. And where were you doing this at? Um, so I, work, I started off working for CN Railroad, so I was covering between uh, Chicago and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Wow, because yeah. we we seen in, in you know the past few months these railroad systems, the subway systems, especially in New York where mm-hmm. we're from, that are completely outdated. They're running on systems that are from like 1910. Right, and yeah. we're like, how is this even possible? Yeah, technology has not changed, and they, they just they do the minimum maintenance to keep it up. So um, I was on like the the freight side, so it wasn't any passenger rail. Okay. So a lot of it's behind the scenes, you know, that they didn't get a lot of exposure unless there's a big derailment somewhere. Yeah. So you, know? you so it's merchandise and to, uh, product is moving through your lines. Right. Okay. Exactly. And like eighty uh, percent of anything that moves somewhere in the United States, if it comes in on a cargo ship from China or somewhere, it moves by rail at some point in time. It only moves by truck when it gets closer to its destination. Yeah, I don't think people realize how big of a business. Um, trains are because mm-hmm. the vast majority of the country probably don't they don't ride trains like we're kind of jaded because yeah. we're from new york so mm-hmm. we're used to riding trains subways mm-hmm. and trains is, is pretty normal yeah but um most of america they don't really ride trains like that anymore so people might not fully understand that trains is, is a big business and even yeah. if you don't ride it like you said a lot of cargo rides yeah. on trains yeah and what people don't realize is that the railroad is basically what helped build the, the west like when everybody went from the east coast to the west coast everything was moving by rail it was small trains back the great then. expansion right yeah the great expansion yeah everything was done by rail and people always wonder why the railroads in the hood that wasn't always the hood that's what the first area that was settled in every small town because you had to bring everything in by rail to set up you know the infrastructure to build a city hall to build the small buildings everything came in by rail so one of your um job title no not titles but responsibilities is design mm-hmm. are you designing the actual tracks like what is what does that mean yeah designing the actual tracks you are yeah oh wow well that, i mean that's what i did now i did that for the first four years i worked for the railroad but like i said i wanted to get out of engineering so um and once i started getting into reading the real estate and entrepreneurship stuff i realized i needed to learn more about business so i kind of took that opportunity while i had the corporate uh blanket over me to try to get into other departments so I went into operations, so I ran freight terminals for like four years, and that was crazy experience because I'm like 24, 25, managing guys that's <laughs> yeah. 40, 50, making yeah. twice as much money as me. Yeah. You know, them union guys make over 100 grand a year. I was making like 50, 60. So I learned a lot about managing people in that, in that role. And then I got out of that, and I got into the marketing and sales side, and I was lucky enough to get into industrial products, which is chemicals and oil and gas stuff. So I'm sitting in rooms with all these decision makers at Exxon, Chevron, Phillips 66, these type companies. 
And um, yeah, man, it just opened my eyes to a whole different world. They speak a different language. You learn a lot more about the economy and infrastructure, everything. Like, one of the, what's one of the things you, you learned when you was working on that side of the fence? Man, I just I just learned um, how money really works and how people really make decisions because energy runs the country. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, with, without without coal, without oil, without gasoline, everything shuts down. And so they know that they basically have a monopoly on everything. You know, and the profit margins are crazy in that in that world. What's the profit margins? Uh props. 300% on a lot of stuff. Wow. On like gas and oil and stuff. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. Um, a lot of people are saying that we should move away from that, mm -hmm. going to solar energy, wind mm -hmm. energy, electric energy. Mm -hmm. um, you're you're an engineer and you worked in this, this space. Mm -hmm. A, is that realistic? And what's your thoughts on that? Like as a long term, can we continue the way we're going now or do we have to make a change? I mean, eventually there there will have to be a change because there's a limited amount of fossil fuels out there. So we're going to have to find other energy sources that we can use that are renewable. So it's definitely feasible. It's definitely plausible. And like wind, uh, sunlight, uh, water, that stuff's not, not going to go away. So we're always going to have that. But you just have these big institutions that are making so much money off of the fossil fuel-based energy sector that they're not going to just give up their position. Yeah, and they do a lot of lobbying in Washington. That's what I was about to say. That's something that we don't really understand, but that lobbying is powerful. That's why all the legislation really happens. Now, I don't care who you vote for. It's somebody with money in the yeah. back, behind the scenes in Washington taking them out to dinner, whining and dining them, and that's when the real decisions are made. They got to make sure they keep their money going. Yeah. I remember yeah. when um, Hillary Clinton was running for president versus Trump, I think. Yeah, so they were saying, um, I think, Chase. Mm -hmm. Chase put like 10 million into Hillary's campaign, mm -hmm. but they put 9 million into Trump's campaign. Mm -hmm. So no matter who won, they won. Right. It doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, that's yeah. what people don't fully understand either. Mm -hmm. It's like you're playing a political game based off of emotion, mm -hmm. but these people are playing a political game based off of strategy. Mm -hmm. It's two different things. Yeah, they're playing chess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're going to give money yeah. to Republicans, Democrats, yeah. and independents because at the end of the day, they need what they need done mm -hmm. and right. money talks. And whoever's, right. whoever's the decision maker, either red or blue, mm -hmm. is going to help them. Right. Yeah. So you started a business, um, the E-Rail Commerce. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? So basically, none, something else I like to teach entrepreneurs, especially the ones that's coming out of the corporate world, everybody feels like I got to create something new. Like I got to get into an industry that I see everybody else doing, right? Um, but what I realized is like, man, if this company is paying me 100 grand a year to do this job, there has to be a smaller business out there somewhere that needs these same services, needs the same skill set, and I can just go out and provide the service for them. And instead of being their employee, I become their consultant. Mm. So that's what E-Rail Commerce is. I took all that experience I had, all those connections I had with the railroad, all these oil and gas companies, and I found all these smaller companies that need or want to get a contract with an Exxon because mm. Exxon has over 10,000 rail cars. Every one of those cars has to be maintained, has to be repainted, has to be cleaned, has, has to be maintenance done to them. They have to store them when they're not using them. They gotta park them somewhere. So what I do is I help all those companies that provide those services get in the door with Exxon, get the contract, mm -hmm. and then they perform all the work, and I just get commissions off of the deals. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you, you get like the relationship, man. You, you I am. I'm basically brokering. Mm -hmm. Basically brokering, and I have everything set up with, with my clients to where whatever contract I help them get, I get paid. But So E-Rail is not the only um, form of consultation that you, you're providing, right? Don't you have a few other consultation things that you do? Well, I mean, in general, I just try to help entrepreneurs get started, you know, because, okay. I mean, I, I was so lost when I was trying to get out, out of the work world, and I was like, man, nobody was really here to guide me and teach me, so I use my, my social media platform, and, you know, I use 
my that network and that audience um, as as my way to give back. You know, so anybody that has help wants help with it, getting started in entrepreneurship. I try to teach them the basics, the kind of stuff we're talking about now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I get them as far as I can, and then I try to network with someone that's actually in their field and try to get them to get under that person. You know, oh, so you're further. providing the mentorship yeah. by the by consulting? Right. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Consulting is something that we also haven't spoke about yet in this podcast, but mm-hmm. it's extremely important, and it's a very profitable business as well. It is. Yeah. Consultants, you have consultants in school industry, you have mm-hmm. consultants in political industry, you have consultants in all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Can you explain the importance, a lot of times, especially for small business owners, this is mm-hmm. the problem with small business owners as compared to business, big business. Mm-hmm. They have a small way of thinking. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the power of consulting. They mm-hmm. don't understand the power of marketing. They don't mm-hmm. understand. They just want to just do the work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like running on a treadmill. You can only get so far, right. right? When you get enough wind behind you, now you can start to fly. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the power of consulting, mm-hmm. like what, what, what can somebody get value out of as a, as hiring a, the, the right consultant? So there's only two ways you're going to learn. You're either going to bump your head and you're going to lose time and money or you're gonna pay for the knowledge, period. There's no other way you're gonna learn, right? So you hire a consultant, the consultant is someone that's an expert in that field, that's already got experience doing what you're trying to do, um, or they can help you with a particular area of the business that, that you can't fulfill. Like if, if you have a great product, but you don't know how to get it in front of enough people, you, you need a marketing consultant to come in and help you get it in front of the right people. Um, and so it, it, it's basically a way for you to, you can add a whole department to your business without actually having to hire an employee. It's a consultant, you know, that consultant can either be somebody that's paid by the hour or it could be somebody that I always recommend you get performance based consultants, which means they work off a of commission. So mm. if they don't produce for you, they don't not gonna make any money. Mm. Right. So that, that gives them a vested, a vested reason to get in there and work hard and get something done. And on, on the flip side of that, that, like you said, that's a very lucrative business too because it's a business where it doesn't require you have to invest a lot. You can work from home and be a consultant and people are actually paying you just for the knowledge that you already have. You know, so you can take that corporate experience. You could, man, you could have been flipping burgers at McDonald's for five years, but guess what skill set you got? You know what it takes to onboard a new employee. So you can go to other small restaurants and say, Here, here's the McDonald's model. I'm going to teach you how to run a McDonald's model for your restaurant. And that's something that anybody can do. Like as right. you're saying it, I'm thinking like, especially in the education field and especially mm-hmm. in the restaurant field as well. Mm-hmm. It's like people always try to figure out how can they make passive income, mm-hmm. right? And they don't realize that they have a skill set already. Mm-hmm. They're just overlooking it, right? right? They're not maximizing their potential. Well, this is one of the things mm-hmm. you talk about multiple streams of income. Mm-hmm. That is the average millionaire has seven yeah. streams of income. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he has seven jobs or even right. seven businesses. It's that they're maximizing their skills, for maybe one or two businesses. Mm-hmm. So as you said, you can be a teacher, mm-hmm. right? But you're an expert in that field. Mm-hmm. If you're a really good teacher, now you can be a consultant yep. to school districts, mm-hmm. yep. right? Curriculum, things mm-hmm. of that nature, right? And mm-hmm. that's something that anybody can do, as Troy said, even if you, you, you're still an employee, mm-hmm. you can be an entrepreneur and create your own consulting yeah. business. And yeah. it, the, the amount of time, it doesn't require as much, right? right. You can say, no. these are my hours, you dictate the hours, yeah. and you dictate the fees. Yeah, and, right? and a lot of times you're helping different customers and clients with the same problem. Exactly. So you already know it, like in and out, you know? For your, so you, for your consulting business, how did you market yourself to, to your customers or clients? How do you, how do you Man, the most powerful tool I use is LinkedIn. Okay. And what I liked about LinkedIn is because when you, when you put yourself on there as a business owner, you give yourself whatever title you want. You know, so I, I, I gave my, t- it's just, my, it's me and one partner, mm-hmm. but my title is executive VP. 
Mm-hmm. So that puts you in a whole different arena when yeah, you get yeah, on they there. look at you like, oh, right. that's yeah. it's, it's all perception. Yeah, that's it's a all fact. perception. That's a fact. So then when I go to, when I see a company that I'm trying to get a, a connection with, and I go to the CEO and request to connect with them, they be like, oh, it's another executive that wants to connect yeah, with you. Yeah, we got an exec that wants to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's all it is, it's positioning. And it's it's all about you know what you post. I post, I repost a lot of Wall Street Journal type articles that are related to the industry. Um, any type of insight that I get from um, anybody else that's in the industry, I'll, I'll, I'll make a post about that. So then you kind of position yourself as a subject matter expert. So then a lot, what happens is eventually enough people are watching your posts to where when they have a problem, they come to you instead of you having to go out and ask for business. Mm. And the, another great thing I like about LinkedIn is because you can type in any job title you want. So I'm in, in supply chain, right? Mm-hmm. I type in director of supply chain. LinkedIn is going to give me a list of people with that title. So all I do is go connect, 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 you know, and then that builds your audience because people go to check you out to see who who is this that's asking to link with me. And then my, my network on LinkedIn is like 17,000. It's all uh, industrial products, supply chain people from all these big companies. Yeah, you got it. You got, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, well, man. Well, the LinkedIn, yeah. you got to accept every single person, right? Yeah, but, well, th- yeah, the person has, the person has to uh, approve the connection. But if your page is set up to where it looks like, oh, this is somebody that I might want in my network, then you're good, and that, that's the whole purpose of you know making sure that you you set yourself up right mm-hmm. on there with the right titles, right? You send in, you send uh, was it in mail, right? Mm-hmm. They send you in mail, so you, tr- you both. Should. I guess I'm both. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I met with a guy. Uh, matter of fact, he flew in from Arkansas last week because he's working with a private development group that does industrial development, and they're looking for new locations to build new rail terminals, and that's part of my job when I work in the railroad. So that's part of my consulting too. So he literally reached out to me because he had been seeing me make these posts on uh, LinkedIn about railroad development and railroad terminals. So he, this guy literally flew in for the day just for that meeting. Wow. So you are using your resources efficiently. And like yeah. a lot of times people don't realize that. Like mm-hmm. they're just on LinkedIn or they're just on Facebook mm-hmm. just to put pictures up and not networking and not realizing right. like yeah. how powerful a tool mm-hmm. they have at their fingertips. Right. Well, well, LinkedIn is, is only for networking. Mm-hmm. But I gotta get a better. I actually got to do a better job on LinkedIn because I don't know. I just don't feel too comfortable with it. I mm-hmm. feel like it's um kind of boring. I think but I have a page it, too. <laughs> it, it 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 is boring, but it's, yeah. it's it's like Facebook, but it's for business only. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah, it's powerful. So yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you you can it, you would be surprised the people that don't have a lot of LinkedIn followers that are like powerful people, like I mean, like producers, executive producers at these big stations. They may have. 500,000 connections and you go request it and it's approved the next day, you know? But mm. it's, it's like it's like it's like a back door to get the connection that usually you have to call a corporate headquarters and talk to an administrative person and ask a scheduled time to meet this person. You just go to LinkedIn and find them. So when you need it's like getting you past all those steps, exactly. right? Like the all the to, gatekeepers. Yeah, the you gatekeepers. bypass all the gatekeepers. If the person's on LinkedIn. If they're on there. But yeah. every everybody's yeah. on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is the one is the most powerful search thing too because like mm-hmm. so when you search somebody's name on Google the first thing that comes up is LinkedIn yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's like the first thing it's like mm-hmm. a, a it's like your online resume pretty mm-hmm. much it is and um so I don't know how they how they work that with the algorithm but mm-hmm. they they always are on the top of your thing so yeah. you kind of have to have a LinkedIn page mm-hmm. if you're doing anything in business it's mm-hmm. like almost mandatory yeah I agree I got to update mine so. yeah man <laughs> all right yeah, so that was good info so now yeah. in the last time we want to go into real estate we're gonna talk all thing real estate yeah, you got that's some big things going on that's what you're yeah, focused yeah, on yeah, now so yeah for sure. All right, so in the last segment, we're gonna talk about real estate, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, what made you go into real estate, first and foremost? Like I said, I kind of fell into it with the, corp- with the, with the, the corporate job and leaving. 
and I had bought a house at the first gig. And when I moved back to Houston, I couldn't sell it. So um, I had to get a property manager. Property manager rented it out. I was making like 400 bucks a month. And I wasn't working at all for it. I was like, this is, this seems like something lucrative. And you know, the more you research real estate, it's like 80% of first time millionaires are made in real estate. But this is at a relatively young age, right? Like your first property was at 22? Yeah, 22. That's pretty young, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> man. So that was that was kind of a, a a blessing through having worked with the railroad while I was in school. Okay, I had enough tenure with them to actually qualify for a moving package. Ooh. So when you work with a corporate company, when they move you, they they either uh, give you a stipend or they give you like a down payment towards a house. Oh, yeah. And so they gave me the down payment. And instead of me getting an apartment and pocketing the money, I decided to get a house. So, but you could have took the stipend. I could have took the stipend. You thought yeah. the long term plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inge- yeah. I mean, you're not an engineer by mistake. Nah, <laughs> I mean, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. all right. But so yeah. then, how did that transition to you doing what you're now as far as you're developing? So, properties? okay. So when I moved to Houston, um, I, I decided I wanted to go really hard um, on the, in the real estate game. And so, one of my my line brothers, my my frat brother worked for Homevestors, the We Buy Ugly Houses people, mm-hmm. and he was their property manager in the hood. And so I kind of told him what I wanted to do, and so he ended up plugging me with one of the contractors that Homevestors used, and this guy was flipping 20, 30 houses a month for them, doing actual rehab work. And so he kind of became my mentor, and we would pick houses, um, I would flip them, of course he would make money off of the rehabs. And so that's how I kind of got into the real estate game in 2009. I would sell some of them, I kept some of them for rentals, and I, I was doing that for about five years, but then I got tired of having rental property. I mean, I know everybody says that that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to buy a home to live in and have rental property, but man, um, owning rentals sucks. Yeah, what are some of the, the downfalls? Okay, so a lot of people, so a, a good profit margin on a rental property is three or 400 bucks a month, Okay. right? But you have one month, say like a tenant moves out, and then it takes you a month to find another tenant. That's, and if your mortgage payment is $1,200, that's literally three months of your profit gone. If you got to make a repair, that repair is $1,000, that's another two and a half months of profit gone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was like, and then you have this debt. You owe, I was owing like 100, 120 on each house. And so now you got debt and you got these small profit margins. And it's like, okay, I can see how long term I can continue to do this and make money slowly. But dealing with tenants, tenants tearing stuff up, you know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't something that I enjoyed doing. What type of properties were you looking for? Was it single family homes or yeah. multi family or yeah, mixed property? Yeah, at that point in time, I didn't qualify for anything like extravagant, so okay. I was just buying little single family homes. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, you know, everybody can make money in, in any industry, but for me, it's just like I want to do something bigger. And so as I guess I continued to flip, I started realizing, you know, this narrative about gentrification happens over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I know a few of us that are flipping. I don't know anybody that's really trying to get into the development game and, and you know, kind of change the narrative so we have some control over that. So 2013, that's when I decided to kind of get off into that. So you, were you buying land in 2013? Was that the next step? I didn't know what I was going to buy. I just knew what I was going to do was stop flipping and try to figure it out. Okay. So I just started talking about it. And, man, it came full circle. That same, my same line brother that um, helped me get into the game, he had an old tenant reach out to him that used to be in one of the properties and say, hey, I'm over here in Fifth Ward and the landlord over here isn't taking care of the property. I think he's on drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, what he heard was opportunity. So he reached out to me and he's like, man, I think we got an opportunity to go pick up a few houses over here. So I went to go meet with the guy, ended up being a whole block. Mm-hmm. He had a grocery store on it. How much was that? Um, 
okay true story at the time this was in the hood it wasn't worth nothing it was probably worth three hundred thousand the whole block the whole block, the everything, entire block. everything was kind of run down <laughs> but it's in the area where you tell somebody i'm about to go spend three hundred thousand they're like man are you crazy right it's the hood, you know, it's the hood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nothing but drugs and prostitution over there you're gonna waste your money you know um so what i ended up doing to talk him into doing the deal i offered him four hundred thousand for it so but of course i didn't have the cash to pay four hundred thousand so he actually had inherited the property from his dad his dad was like a real estate tycoon had like 26 blocks over there. Mm, 26 blocks. 26 blocks. Whoa. 26 blocks. And this block happened to be the one that they gave this this uh this kid and he was like the the horrible kid, you know what I mean? He botched it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so this was the one he had and he still wasn't taking care of it. So I offered him an owner finance scenario where I was like I'll give you 10% now. With owner finance. So that's when the, the instead of you instead of going to the bank the owner that actually doesn't have any debt on the property will let you make payments over time to buy the property from him. Mm. So I, I gave him 10% of what we agreed to, the 400000 so $40,000, which came from me selling one of my rental properties. And then, uh, then that allowed me now to control that whole block of property. And it had the grocery store on it, and it had the houses, but everything was really run down. So instead of fixing it up, what I decided to do was do um, parolee housing for felons mm. because it's really hard for them to find anywhere to live. Mm -hmm. So I would rent them out a single room in, in each one of the houses, charge them 350 a month or something that they could afford because of the type of jobs they could get, you know, they, they didn't have much income. Or Was that like a halfway house? Pretty much like a halfway house, okay. yeah. It's just, they call them SRO houses. And then, yeah. so the, the state pays you that, right? Sometimes, some, sometimes if it depends on what, what program they're in, they get some type of housing assistance, but most of the time, no, they had to go get a job. Okay. So that's what made it really good because you talk about a low a low risk tenant. You got somebody that's happy to be out of prison. They was in prison for a nonviolent offense. I didn't do violent people. Um, they had to keep a job and they had to keep somewhere to stay. And ninety nine percent of the places wouldn't even allow them to live there. So they were like they were like built in good, uh, high high revenue for me. You know what I mean? As as collectively in each house, whereas. I could have rented that whole house for $500 to a regular family. Now I'm making $1,100, $1,200 off that same house, you know, with this program. And because you were renting the rooms, renting them individual rooms. Okay. And most of them had trades. So they were like carpenters, electricians, plumbers. They all learned their trades in prison. Yeah. So anything went wrong, I just drop off materials. They would fix it. <laughs> oh, you know wow. What I mean? The wind is built in. <laughs> and, and they were just happy to have somewhere to live, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so that worked out. That was a win win, man. Um, and then that was 2013. 14, 15, I did that. In 2016, redevelopment kind of started in the area that I was in. Something else that I, I always watched too, even when I was flipping, is what the city's plans were. And you can go to the, the, the planning department's website and it'll tell you what they're planning to do five years, 10, 10 years down the road. And that's a lot of the game that we don't pay attention to. Mm. But you know, the other groups pay attention to Where that. Where can you find that information at? Usually you can just Google it, like 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 planning and development department or, or urban planning for whatever city you're in, and it'll pull up on their website. You know, it's usually a .gov type website, um, and it'll have their, all their information. A lot of it's talked about at city council meetings, so you can look up city council meeting minutes, mm -hmm. and it'll tell you about anything big, any developer that's proposing to do something in a certain area. All that has to be public, publicly announced. So, but what I what I noticed about Houston was that everything was going counterclockwise around downtown. And the, the fifth one neighborhood that I was buying in was the last quadrant. So I knew eventually it was going to come. I just didn't know when, you know. And so, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And um, 
2016, another guy started building, so then I figured it was time for me to try to figure out how to get it done. So what is your, all right, so what's your philosophy on gentrification? What's your, what's your, how do you feel about that? So gentrification has a very negative connotation in our community because we are never the ones revitalizing that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the people that are revitalizing are looking out for themselves or their own groups. It's not that they don't care about us, is that they have their own personal agendas that they're, that, they're, right. that they're moving forward. And so we can either continue to watch it happen or we can participate, right? And we can participate in a way that we kind of control the narrative of what's being built, who it's being built for, and what happens to the surrounding community that we're building in, right? So my goal with my project was, you know, most of the time when you hear about black builders um, in black neighborhoods, it's low income stuff. And I feel like that's great. Like we do need to look out for the low income people, mm -hmm. but we gotta attract the people that were successful, the people that made it out those neighborhoods and back to those neighborhoods because we need that income. We need that demographic if we ever want a grocery store to come back. We can't sit and depend on the government to do that. Mm -hmm. And right now what happens is the people that are successful, they go and buy houses in the suburbs, right? It's not because they don't wanna move back, it's because they have no options. Mm -hmm. So my focus was, well, let me start building some some market rate stuff, not low income housing stuff, but try to attract these working professionals back to the neighborhoods with a high quality product that they, they you know, they're, they're gonna pay the same price they're paying in the suburbs. And in the city, your value is gonna appreciate a whole lot more, especially when that neighborhood starts to revitalize. And that's kind of what you've done with, you know, the land that you bought in 2013. Right. Which is your, the most recent development that you worked on. It's mm -hmm. 14, um, is it 14? Yeah, 14 units. 14 yeah. units. 14 individual townhouse. townhouses, yeah. Yeah, you wanna talk about that, how, how that came about? Yeah, so, th so this is the same property that I bought with the grocery store and everything. Okay. So 2016, I decided to just tear everything down. Uh -huh. When I saw there was another developer that was building houses deep in the neighborhood, and he was selling them for 250 before they were complete. He wasn't even listing them on MLS. Mm. So I'm like, so that tells me that there's a mindset. There's enough people out there that are willing to save $100,000 because everything else inside the city loop, was like inside 16 loop, was two, 350 or more. So, but people would rather save that money and live in a neighborhood that was still pretty rough. So I was like, well, if he can do this deep in the neighborhood, I'm right on the feeder to the highway. You know, I got a view of downtown. I should be able to do something with my property too. And so that's when I, I decided I'm gonna move forward with this initiative to try to build these townhouses. And um, it took a lot of work. It took me building the right team because I had no idea what I was doing. Goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the consultant. I had to find the right team, the right, I had to find a builder that had enough experience that was willing to kind of uh, lend his knowledge and, and time to me, of course, for a fee, you know, had to pay him to be my consultant, basically teach me how to do the first project. Um, but that's what I did. So what's the, what's, what's your, your plans now as far as how many projects are you, are you working on? Like what's your, what's your vision look like for the next five years? Next five years, I want to finish this project, which will probably be finished next year. And I want to continue to build, uh, the same model in the same neighborhood. Um, I, I kind of want to make this like, a, a real world example that can be duplicated in other cities. Like we can go in, we can buy the land. And I didn't mention my entire team is from the community too. Right. So like my, my, my builders, my real estate brokers, my insurance brokers, um, everybody. The contractors as well? Contractors as well, yeah, yeah. I'm working with a black builder. So, and it's, it's not just anybody, it's people that got good reputations, but we kind of always silo ourselves and we never really collectively work together on stuff. Yeah. So um, yeah, and, and the goal, and the most important part of all of this, whether you flipping, another industry a lot of people in is wholesaling or building new construction is ensuring that you put the product in front of the right end buyer because if you're flipping you call yourself buying a block 
But if you're not w- watching who you're selling to on the back end, right. you're still gentrifying the neighborhood. Yeah. So my, my goal is really to educate us on, like, like I said, the working professional on why it's better for you to buy over here. Yeah. So I'm building the first three now. Got uh, contracts on two of them. Both of them are young, pro- young black professionals, basically oil and gas professionals. No, it's townhouses, right? The townhouses, yeah. Uh, I got a, a dentist, a, a black dentist from from Dallas that's looking at buying one. You know, so it's it, it's all about making sure that we 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 create that model because right now that gentrification narrative is the only thing that's that that's real. Mm-hmm. And for our people, we do better when we see examples of something that's actually working. And so when 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 this is complete. I want to make sure that this model gets as much exposure as possible. It's not about me making all the money. I want people in other cities to do the same thing, you know, to say it's possible. We really can't do this, and this is the example. How do you evaluate, like, what area you want to – I know you say you look at, the, like, the city plans, mm-hmm. but do you have, like, a set formula, or is it just kind of like you just know the area and you just kind of have a good feeling? Because you can buy in some bad neighborhoods, and they don't get better. Right. right? So it's like, I mean, how do you know, like, this is, this is probably going to get better? Uh, it, it's, it's all about your network because you got to be talking to people in the industry. So the, a lot of the, the, the realtors that I work with, they work with builders. And, you know, you got to have a network of commercial realtors around you too because they know where the commercial developers are looking at, what areas they're looking at. So it's a lot of it's word of mouth in addition to what you see on the city plans, you know. Um, but, yeah, you, you, you got to have your foot in the door. You got to be on the inside understanding where they're moving. And, that, and you just kind of ride that wave along with them. Yeah, a, a few years ago, y'all had one of the most horrific hurricanes in United mm-hmm. States history. Mm-hmm. Um, what impact have you seen since then on the real estate in Houston? Man, you know, um, for it, it, it was a, a, a period of time where the the houses in the areas that did not get flooded, mm-hmm. the values went up um, tremendously, or they were getting bought up really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I didn't see too much of a negative impact. Um, the only thing that I did see is a, a, a shift in ownership where the people that didn't have the proper flood insurance who lost their homes um, had to become renters for a while, mm. right? But at the same time, the investors who had the cash on the table were able to pick up a whole bunch of properties for a lot less than what the values were. Um, not, anything under like $200,000 was still selling as it was rehabbed, but anything above that $200,000 mark um, a lot of it sat on the market. A lot of it's still here now. We had a lot of out-of-town investors that bought that thought that they could buy these flood houses and flip them and sell them really quickly. But the people that, in those price points were not comfortable, you know, setting up their homestead again in an area that just flooded like that. Mm. So so what is, what's your outlook for, for, for Houston, for anybody that's interested in maybe coming in and investing? Um, optimistic for the city? Very optimistic. Man, Houston... Um, on the, on the next census, they're going to announce that Houston is now larger than Chicago, so it's going to be third, number three. It's going to be the third largest city. Yeah, yeah. And, and Houston was least hit by the recession uh, because we didn't have the big inflation in home prices that other markets had. Um, when you look at like international investment as far as real estate in the United States, Houston is number one. Mm-hmm. Whether it's coming from China, Australia, Nigeria, uh, I- anywhere basically, they, they invest here because if you're looking at the three or four biggest cities. The real estate is still cheaper here, yeah. And like I said, and the, the economy was not hurt as much as the other big markets by the recession, so it's the safest bet. Um, not not only that, but you got more people moving to Texas every year, and like I said, Houston is rapidly growing, so the the real estate outlook is is strong for, for this market. I mean, there's two things that I, I I believe are kind of the wave of the future for investing is either tech or it's real estate because no matter how, as technology will advance and replace people and jobs, but people always have to have a place to live. 
I mean, that's never gonna change. Yeah. And I think it's the biggest city land-wise. Lance, yeah, yeah, yeah right? it is, yeah, it is. Square footage, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot more room for it to be developed. It is, it is. And what it is, is like, it's, it's, it, as it's, it's spreading out and it's consuming all the smaller towns around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, they're all merging into one big municipality. You think a part of that, that population increase is due to the influx of people who were misplaced after Hurricane Katrina, or? I mean, we saw a wave of that. Okay. But not, I mean, a lot of it, no, it's just business, it's just, it's just it's attractive, you know. Mm-hmm. You got a lot of people that move from high, high real estate markets like California. They sell their house out here, and you know it could be a regu- regular eighteen hundred square foot house in California. They sell it for one point two million. Come out here and buy a mansion. Yeah, you know. So a lot of people transition down here because just the cost of living is cheaper. Mm. Yeah, oh, sure. So, ah, right, thank you, man. Thank, oh, man, thank no you, problem. thank you for rocking with us. So, yeah. how can people contact you? Um, any initiatives you got going on? Social media handles, all that stuff. Yeah. So social media. Uh, my Instagram is underscore i n v s t r, which is investor with a lot of the vowels missing. <laughs> and then my website is just my name chrissenegal.com c-h-r-i-s-s-e-n-e-g-a-l.com it has a link to everything linkedin my email my my websites um everything so yeah i mean i use my platform to kind of do everything we're talking about now just educate people on entrepreneurship real estate investing and you know how to change understanding money and how money works you know no, that's important yeah. that's important yeah. troy yeah so just want to give a quick call to patreon.com that is our proud to pay program. It's patreon.com backslash earn your leisure. There are five different tiers you can join at. Each tier has a, has a different uh, feature. You know, we have bonus content, bonus video. We have video calls. Uh, shout out to our new members, uh, Jason, Candace, Michael, and Elliot. Elliot, we reached out and we kind of got disconnected on our call, but we, we're definitely gonna be in contact with him. And shout out to Danita again, who's from the H-Town and uh, has been showing us so much hospitality. Uh, we landed and she came up with a full itinerary as soon as we got <laughs> off the plane. So shout out to her. Um, and yeah, Mick, feel free to subscribe at any time. Also go to uh, earnyourleisure.com. We have our merch up there. Uh, and we got a few other things that will be coming in September. September's gonna be a big month, so be on the lookout for some new things from Earn Your Leisure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, once again, thank you to the city of Houston. By the time you guys hear this, we'll be back in New York. But um, the networking event, we actually got our networking event tonight. Um, and I know it's going to be crazy. I know it's yeah, going to be cool. amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm um, looking forward to it. But, um, you know, this is what we like to do. And Patreon is a way to um, financially support the podcast. And this is ways that we, we travel. We highlight um, local entrepreneurs and business owners. And, and we educate people on what's going on in different areas. Right? Mm-hmm. You want to go to, like, these different areas and say, okay, we're in Detroit. What's the opportunities here? What's the opportunities in Chicago? What's the opportunities in Cleveland? What's the opportunities in Houston, Texas? So it's important. We can't just think locally. We got to mm-hmm. think, you know, we got to broaden our horizon and think um, on a national level and on a global level as well. Mm-hmm. I'm very big on that globally. Um, so my book tip of the week is Entrepreneur Roller Coaster by Darren Hardy. And every entrepreneur understands what that means because it's a roller coaster. It's never, yeah. it's never all good. It's yeah. never all good. Um, so, yes. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Earn Your Leisure YouTube. Um, we will be putting bonus content up and we got different segments and you just want to see things visually. YouTube is the place to see it. Um, iTunes as well. Subscribe to our iTunes. Um, those are our two main outlets, but we're also on Spotify, Google. We're all over the place. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, as I always say, if people want to get in contact with me as far as to ask me questions in regards to my business as a financial advisor. Um, you want to roll over 401k, you have an inheritance, you want to invest some money, you can go to earnyourleisure.com 
and my calendar is on there. You can book a 30 minute free consultation with me and I can um, you know, give you some advice, see if I could be of any help. And yes, we will see you guys next week. Yeah, we got to sure. welcome Chris to the alumni club. Yeah, yeah, for hey. sure. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate so it. For sure. Everybody that comes on the show uh-huh. um, after they finish the episode, they become alumni. Because the next Love time it. we come to Houston or we go to a city, uh-huh. you may say, yo, I want to come to the event too. Okay. So we just bring alumni to the event. Oh, I love so, it. So yeah. welcome to the alumni club. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, Appreciate he's going to be he's gonna be at the event tonight. So Definitely, he's going to yeah. be the, the, the youngest alumni. <laughs> <laughs> for, for sure. sure. For sure. For sure. So um, yes, thank you for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.